As AI continues to revolutionize our world, there's a critical conversation we can't ignore. AI safety and security. And that's where HackerOne's AI red teaming comes into play, rigorously testing AI models to prevent them from being misled or exploited. HackerOne employs over 2 million ethical hackers, and 750 of them specialize in prompt hacking and other AI security and testing. So HackerOne isn't just theorizing, they're actively safeguarding AI's future. Just recently, a team unearthed over 100 vulnerabilities in just two weeks. So whether you're at the helm of a startup or steering product innovation at a large company, it's time to prioritize AI security. Visit HackerOne.com slash AI for more. Again, HackerOne.com slash AI. This episode is sponsored by Porkbun.com. Porkbun is a refreshingly different domain name registrar that's different from the other ones like GoDaddy or Namecheap. They've got low prices on hundreds of different domain extensions. They've got everything from .com domains to really cool ones like .pro, .dev, .xyz. Every domain name at Porkbun comes with tons of freebies too, like SSL certificate, who is privacy, DNS, URL forwarding, and hosting trials. Because why pay for things that should be free, right? All these incredible features and tools are backed by incredible support, 365 days a year, and more five-star reviews on Trustpilot from real customers than anyone else. Look, you can get a dollar off your next domain name from Porkbun and see why they're the best domain name register around by using our code. Just go to porkbun.com forward slash rocketchipfm24. That's porkbun, P-O-R-K-B-U-N dot com forward slash rocketchipfm24. You'll save a dollar on your next domain. This episode is brought to you by Gigantic. At Gigantic, you can level up your product skills through live small group cohort-based trainings. We're incredibly excited to welcome you to our next cohort of our product strategy training kicking off in January of 2024. This course will take you through the frameworks that product leaders use at companies like eBay, DoorDash, Groupon, Rent the Runway in order to scale their teams. It's taught by Ben Foster, a friend of this podcast, who is the former chief product officer at Whoop. So come join us. Go to gigantic.is. That's gigantic.is. And save your seat for our January cohort. Your potential is gigantic, and we're here to help you reach it. Go to gigantic.is to reserve your seat today. All right. So I know we said we'd be back with another episode on mental models, and we will next week. But, and this is a big but, I couldn't get the episode done on time because I'm currently driving a U-Haul across Canada as I move my family from Montreal to Vancouver. And tonight I find myself in the lovely town of Brandon, Manitoba. And in the meantime, I wanted to bring you one of my favorite episodes from season, I think it's five, where we dive deeper into one of the great product minds of our day, Jeff Bezos. So here is In Bezos We Trust. Enjoy. Since its founding in 1995, Amazon has showed a knack for finding and exploiting various areas of the marketplace, not always connected from 
starting off selling books to AWS and their developer-facing marketplace, Amazon is known for taking calculated risks. And that was no different than when Jeff Bezos wanted to develop the Amazon Kindle. He had sent off all of his executives to kind of think about what the future uh, investments should be for for Amazon. And everybody kind of came back with all these uh, assumptions that were built in about where technology was going to go and what, you know, Web 3.0 was going to be defined as, you know, XYZ, you know, that kind of stuff. And here's Ben Foster. He categorically rejected all of these recommendations because he wanted to come back to those things that weren't going to change. He wanted to come back to those essential beliefs, which is that customers want, you know, wide selection, good prices, fast delivery, great customer support. And those are things that people wanted a hundred years ago. Those are things that people will want a hundred years from now. And Bezos knew it, and he knew that any new direction they took would have to encompass those principles. So we can bank on those things. And while we don't necessarily have to go out and do a bunch of research behind it, we can build a strategy around those those essential beliefs. And that didn't prevent them from being innovative, right? It's what made them innovative was because they focused and they doubled down on those things to say, how can we make delivery faster than what USPS could even potentially provide, right? Well, digital delivery, right? And, you know, what would we have to do um, to get prices lower than what what publishers could even profitably do. And that's sort of like, you know, again, digital delivery. And so it kind of like pushed them in this direction of saying, hey, we need to go build this e-reader product. Um, and they, you know, looked at all the technologies that were available, et cetera, and they went and built it, but they didn't even have any in-house capability to do hardware development at the time. So they had to go build that whole entire stuff. And through a mix of data and beliefs, they were able to build a whole new arm of Amazon. Some parts they knew from data and research that they had done, and some parts were based on core essential beliefs. And so I'd kind of like encourage any company to ask themselves, what are their core essential beliefs that they're willing to, to bank on when they make new investments? Because if you don't have any of those kinds of things, you're always going to be stuck in this morass of like analysis paralysis. And so today we're going to take a look at a couple stories from Amazon and Bezos and take a look at how Bezos approaches the marketplace. And we even have a story about one of the ongoing techniques that he uses to stay on top of the market. Welcome to Rocketship.fm, the podcast where we explore startups from funding to growth, from culture to sales and everything in between. I'm Michael Saka. And I'm Joelle Goldman. Welcome to the fourth episode in our product series. If you're just joining us, go back and listen to the first three. We've covered everything from the basics of product management to jobs to be done, and we've looked at some ways to collect data and feedback to inform your product decisions. And today we're going to take a look at what it's like to take risks, those big risks in the market. And so we're talking with Ben Foster, who was a product manager at eBay in the early 2000s when they were competing directly against Amazon. And so the story we're telling today is the story of these two giant companies competing in the same market, but taking two very different product directions. And we're going to take a look at the results of that. So the year is 2001, and Ben is working as a product manager at eBay. Uh, And there was a pretty nasty competition with Amazon, and a lot of people were coming online. And, uh, you know, each new customer that was coming online, uh, eBay was trying to get and Amazon was trying to get. And so we certainly saw them 
as being heavy competition, but eBay was sort of like a little bit more of a dominant player at the time. And with all of these new customers coming online, they wanted to look at the direction of the product and see which way they should go in order to best serve this new market. We realized that we actually had two very different kinds of customers as we were doing this. We had buyers who were looking to you know, purchase new items and find things on eBay. And then we had sellers who were trying to make a living doing this, or sometimes they weren't even trying to make a living, or you know, they were just trying to sell some junk out of their garage to make a couple extra bucks. Um, but when we looked across both of them, we realized, wow, the number of inputs that we have spanning both of them is far in excess of what we actually have the technical capacity to deliver on the engineering side. So we're going to have to make some really tough decisions about what we prioritize and what we don't. So they broke down the different directions that they could take and they assigned each direction in each part of the product to a different product manager. And then those product managers went back, strategized, and then pitch their proposed solution to a board of executives who would then decide which direction for eBay to pursue. What came out of this is that we had to make a choice almost of, do we want to focus more on what buyer's needs are, or do we want to focus more on what seller's needs are? And we decided that when we looked at it, you know, who's actually paying eBay money is going to be the person that we're going to define to be the customer. And because all the fees were being paid by sellers, whether those were listing fees or whether those were transaction fees after the item had sold, um, either way, the seller was the one who was actually paying eBay's uh, bills. And so, you know, when we had to make a difficult decision, we decided to prioritize uh, the seller's needs. And so things like uh, a seller vacation hold was a really good example of a feature that we ended up prioritizing. And it totally made sense when you did the ROI analysis of it. The seller vacation hold was a feature that allowed sellers to essentially go on vacation without necessarily losing as much income as they currently were. This was a big anxiety point for sellers, and it was a big win for eBay when they put it out. So eBay decided that sellers were their customers, but across the way, Amazon had taken a much different approach. At the same time that this kind of thing was getting prioritized at eBay, though, Amazon was out there making some really um, bold prioritization decisions on their side. Um, things like opening up what at the time was Z shops, but has sort of like morphed into just other sellers listing items as well. And they really focused on what a good buyer's experience would be. And so they made, you know, a, a great consumer experience that was very easy to use. You know, if you searched at the time for Lord of the Rings DVD, uh, there were all kinds of differences in what you would see between uh, Amazon and eBay's experience. On Amazon, you'd see one item for the Lord of the Rings DVD. It would be described accurately and completely and professionally. And then you'd see that there were, you know, you could buy it from Amazon or you could buy it from all these different sellers. When you went over to eBay, you would see Lord of the Rings, Lord of the Rings, Lord of the Rings. Every DVD described just slightly differently by different sellers and it was really hard to pinpoint what item you actually wanted to buy. And each of these items would be expiring in the next 30 seconds. And, you know, different ones had different shipping costs and things like that. And they just really focused on what the seller's interests were rather than the buyer's interests. And as a result, I think a lot of buyers ended up flocking to Amazon over time, especially those convenience-oriented shoppers, which were those ones that were 
deemed to be the most valuable, I think, for both companies. So we'll be right back with the conclusion of this eBay Amazon story, plus one of the techniques that Jeff Bezos uses in order to keep the customer in the conversation when they're making these big product decisions. And so we'll get to that right after a quick word from our sponsors. When Rain Wilson realized he had a special gift for talking people to sleep, he had two choices. Construct a massive speaker that would blast his voice to every person in the country or invent a talking pillow. AT&T Business eventually talked him into the pillow thing. And backed by a reliable network, the only network with built-in security controls, Sleep With Rain was a hit. Take your ideas to the moon and beyond at business.att.com. That's business.att.com. So now back to our story about eBay and Amazon competing for market share. eBay had chosen the seller as their main customer focus, while Amazon had chosen to focus on buyers as their main focus. And Amazon was now winning the market because of this choice. But stock price as it slipped from 05 to 08, I think it went down from something like 58 to, to 12, um, was because uh, you know, the, the, the big lesson for us was that if you focus on what the seller is looking for in a two-sided marketplace, then you're helping them to list more and more items. Yes, that's great. But what they really want at the end of the day is not those things that they're going to tell you in a focus group. What they really want at the end of the day is that when somebody's searching for their product, that they type ebay.com into their browser instead of amazon.com into their browser. And if you can just keep making that happen, then everything else will kind of like take care of itself. You know, you've got to make sure that there's things that are relatively frictionless. Sure. But overall, if we had just solved that problem, I think sellers would have been in a lot better place. Because what happens in a two-sided marketplace, when you focus on the seller, eBay got more sellers. They had a better seller experience. But what they didn't have was the buyers who were actually putting the money down to buy the products. While the sellers may have been paying eBay's fees, they were letting down the sellers by not focusing on bringing them more products. And as a result of focusing on sellers' needs, what we did is we kept gaining more and more sellers. So imagine that those same Lord of the Rings DVDs, you can now get 10 times as many sellers coming on listing those products, but you have the same number of buyers or even fewer buyers. You know, what's going to happen to the sellers' margins? They're going to keep going down, 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 down despite the fact that they have vacation hold and all these other kinds of features available to them. And so while this did hurt eBay and it did cause them to lose market share, ultimately they did turn it around. They did figure out that focusing on the buyer would create better experiences both for the buyers and for the sellers as well. You honestly see the rebound in the stock price uh, that I think was a result of that. There was a change of, of management. A lot of people you know, kind of came in and, and left and um, there was this realization, I think, It kind of came through another competitive analysis of realizing that Google was a major competitor at the time as well, which is that, hey, people can, you know, circumvent the whole entire buying process, whether it's eBay or Amazon, just by searching things on Google, finding some sort of outside store and then deciding to buy the item that way. And so naturally, I think once you start to see Google as a competitor, even though Google is not the one actually selling any of the products themselves, you realize that the buyer's experience is something that's really important, right? And, you know, Google was sort of winning people's homepages, for example. Um, And this is even before Chrome, you know, was highly adopted. This is still in the time of, you know, Internet Explorer and things like that being used. But Google was still being set as everybody's homepage. And, 
you know, their search engine was so good that it was like, why would I ever go to eBay.com or anything else.com to go find what I was looking for? And I think that once there was that realization, uh, there was a turnaround on the strategy. And I think that there was a really heavy focus placed on the buyer's experience. That's not to say that they've you know, come back to beat Amazon, I think. I think Amazon still has the number one best buying experience out there. But I think that at least eBay was able to do a pretty good job of recovering from that. And that led in a lot of ways to decisions like the decision to purchase PayPal and things like that, too. Uh, for the for the sake of convenience for shoppers. And in addition to realizing that sometimes we can choose the wrong side of our product to focus on, we also can choose the wrong competitors to focus on. I mean, who saw Google at that time entering this market and being such a dominant player where you have to change your strategy based on the strategy that Google takes? Because for better or worse, Google owns most of our homepages. It's the first place we go to to search for anything. But Google aside, as I talked to Ben, the conversation would come back to Bezos often, perhaps because of his focus on Amazon at eBay and perhaps just his admiration for Jeff Bezos as a product leader. But he had this story of Jeff Bezos and his technique to keep the customer in the conversation, even when the customer couldn't be there in the meeting. Yeah, so uh, so I've interviewed a lot of people from Amazon and uh, and they all tell me these really interesting stories of their experiences with Bezos because I'm always really interested in, in how this went. And he, one of the things that they refer to is the fact that he's got this empty chair in his board meetings and his executive meetings that represents the customer. And I, I love the idea because he's sort of acknowledging that the customer is not there and yet still needs to have a voice, right? Um, that is something that everybody's sort of like forgetting about. Um, but he doesn't do these meetings without this empty chair uh, to represent that. And beyond the symbolic, what Bezos is saying here is that there's data and there's opinions and there's people out there that we need to take into consideration when we're making these product decisions because their voice matters. And I think that there's a lot of companies that, you know, they're so data focused that it's almost like if there isn't data behind this, then we can't act on it, right? Or, you know, let's say, for example, you're prioritizing as a product manager two different features, and one of them is very, very measurable what the impact is going to be because you've done an A-B test or, you know, something of that nature, and you know exactly what the impact is going to be. But then there's some other product that you could go prioritize instead that's very hard to measure. For example, like an internal report that's going to tell you some new information that you don't otherwise have. The value of that report could be zero if there's nothing actionable that comes out of it. Or it could be massive, you know, it could be a $100 million opportunity that comes out of just generating this report that you otherwise would never know because you never sort of, you know, had the ability to see the numbers or to see um, the story unfold in that particular way. So um, a lot of times what happens is that those things that are more qualitatively measured, those things that are a little bit more understood tend to get sort of like higher billing than those things that are less. But just because they're easier to measure doesn't necessarily mean mean that they're more important, right? Um, and so I, I like that there's a progression towards measuring more and more of these things that, 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 are hard, that used to be hard to measure. But no matter how much we measure, no matter how many data points we have, ultimately our product decisions come from us. And this, this is how the big decisions, the big market risks come about. And this is how they pay off measuring how a customer uses our product and changing the button color is never 
going to really make a difference on the big scale of our business. We may pick up 1% or 2% here, but on the big scale of things, the big decisions come from our gut and our beliefs. And no matter how much data that we have, we're never going to get a car from a horse. That will always be a gut call, a visionary decision, and the result of an amazing product leader. Thank you so much for listening to Rocketship.fm. It's your support that keeps the show going. Rocketship.fm is now part of the Podglomerate Network. If you want to learn more about the other shows on the Podglomerate Network, go to thepodglomerate.com. Rocketship.fm is produced in partnership with Product Collective, a community for product people. If you go to productcollective.com, you could check out live video interviews, sign up for our newsletter, be a part of our Slack group with over 6,000 product people. Just check it out at productcollective.com.